Hey everybody, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful day here in Los Angeles. I'm standing in my parents' backyard recording this uh intro because my dad's watching TV inside. Uh and don't want you to have to hear MSNBC droning on about Chris Christie. This uh podcast, this is a great one. This is Stanton Peel. He's an addiction specialist and has been probably the most uh prominent voice in uh, the study of addiction for uh, three decades, four decades maybe. His uh, classic book, Love and Addiction, came out in the 70s, mid-70s, and he's probably published half a dozen books since then. Um, He's a very, very smart guy. He's a lawyer. He's a PhD uh, psychologist. And he's a bit of a rabble rouser, as you'll hear. He's uh, he's a guy who tells it straight, and he has been arguing, uh, sometimes as a lone voice in the wilderness, that addiction is not a disease. And in fact, he feels that the disease model of addiction, which is dominant uh, in American society, um, is um, disempowering to to people who have issues with drugs or masturbation or gambling or, uh, you know, what have you. There are all sorts of ways you can be addicted, addicted to, uh, I should say there are all sorts of things and activities um, that you can be addicted to. And so if it's a disease, how the hell does that work? You know, is it the same disease? Is it like cancer, something that we call a disease, even though it seems to be a whole bunch of different um, diseases? Or is it not a disease at all? Is that an inappropriate way to think about these things? Stanton uh, argues quite uh, convincingly, in my opinion, that the disease model is flawed, that it does more harm than good, that most people who have uh, unhealthy relationships with alcohol or substances or behaviors of one sort or another... Uh, find their way out of it on their own. Uh, And that uh, by telling people that they've got a disease or some sort of genetic anomaly that makes them addicts for life, what we're doing is we're saying you're in a pretty hopeless situation here. And if you have one drink, you're fucked forever. Uh, You know, one one toke on that joint, one this, one that, you know, place one bet, you're going to just slip right back into uh, oblivion. And uh, what Stanton says is that's not true for most people. Most people can have a healthy relationship with all sorts of different things, and uh, including people who sometimes slip into unhealthy relationships with these things. So um, it's a very interesting uh, argument, and he's a very, very interesting, well-informed man. He's uh, world-famous. He goes all over the place from Japan to France. I, I saw him speak in, in France to a sold-out crowd of about 500 people. Um, he's, he's a pretty big deal. And he's got a new book that's coming out this week uh, called Recover. It's on Amazon.com. I'll put a link uh, at my site, chrisryanphd.com, or you can also get there uh, just by uh, going to tangentiallyspeaking.com. That'll take you to the podcast website. You'll find Stanton if you're listening to this uh, soon. It'll be at the top of the list. If you listen to this podcast in the future, uh, you'll find it in the archives. Um, okay, one other thing I want to say about Stanton. Stanton, and, and by the way, I should say uh, tangentially, which is appropriate, uh, 
this is very topical uh, to, to release this podcast when I am because the guy that everybody says I look like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, died yesterday. So it's just me now. Uh, and he died apparently with a syringe full of heroin stuck into his arm. Um, so it's a sobering, uh, sobering insight into, into these things or a reminder of just how serious an issue this is. Um, if you're interested in this topic, you'll find uh, in the archives, I also interviewed uh, Gabor Mate and um, Carl Hart, who are together with Stanton Peel, um, probably among the most prominent uh, experts on this issue of addiction in the world right now. Uh, anyway, a personal note on Stanton. Uh, Stanton had a blog or has a blog on psychology today uh, where I have a blog, although I don't, I don't, I'm not very active with that blog anymore. Um, but about four years ago, maybe four and a half, no, it must have been five years ago now when I was working on Sex at Dawn, I got this offer to, to do a blog at Psychology Today uh, and I was one of the original bloggers. Now I think there are over a hundred. And Stanton was among the ori original six, seven, ten bloggers that they they had there. And uh, at some point, I I don't know whether it was an article, uh, a blog that he published or something I published. But in any case, one of us wrote the other uh, an email admiring what what he'd said. And we sort of started up a correspondence, and um, yeah, I mentioned that I was working on this book. And Stanton Peel, who is a very busy guy, he's got a lot going on in his life, uh, took a lot of time and really encouraged me while I was sitting alone in a room in Barcelona working on a manuscript that I secretly thought would probably amount to nothing might not ever get published at all, and if it did, you know, very few people would probably read it. Uh, Stanton was in my corner from the beginning. He read drafts of chapters and gave me really good comments. This is from a guy who had published half a dozen books uh, and was uh, just incredibly generous with his his time and his expertise and I can't thank him enough for that. Uh, so in addition to all the knowledge that you'll get from this, uh, from listening to this conversation, I hope you'll also hear that uh, I've got a lot of affection for this guy. I, I really love him, and I very much appreciate how much he's done for me. So there's that uh, angle as well. Uh, sponsors, Squarespace. Check them out, squarespace.com. Uh, if you're going to get a website going, get it going with Squarespace. They've just updated uh, their, um, uh, what's it called, their interface. You know, the whole, the way that you set up the web uh, page, the templates. They've updated all that. They've just added a whole bunch of new features. All the web pages now have um, the capacity to sell products. So you don't have to get the business uh, plan, which is a little bit more expensive than the basic plan, to sell stuff. Uh, I've got the business plan because I'm selling T-shirts, as you may know, uh, the tangentially speaking uh, T-shirts and hoodies, as well as the Sex at Dawn T-shirts. Um, but, you know, if, you've, if you're selling something, whether it's digital or physical or whatever, 
Now, as of a week ago, you can sell that stuff through your website, whether you've got the business plan or the personal plan or whatever plan you decide to go with, uh, that's included. They've also got accounting tools, so if you are um, selling stuff through your site, you can generate, you know, you can inter, uh, inter uh, what's the word, interact, intersect, enter something with QuickSpace and other accounting tools. Um, anyway, super cool. It was great a month ago. It's even better now. All sorts of uh, wonderful stuff. They're based in New York. Uh, if you're dealing with customer service, you're going to be dealing with some you know, New York hipster who really knows what he or she is doing, and they're going to get back to you immediately. Uh, they're very, very helpful, very cool, very responsive, and all in all, it's a great site. I can't recommend it enough. If you decide you're going to give it a shot, use Tangent 2. If you do it in the month of February, Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N 2, and you get an additional 10% off uh, an already very low price. If you get a one-year annual plan, they will include the registration of your URL, which is usually uh, $15, $20, bucks, something like that. So you're ending up with a hell of a savings if you do that and use the Tangent2 code. All right. Uh, in addition to Squarespace, this uh, episode is sponsored by Sure Design T-shirts. As always, the first, the best, the deepest, the greatest sponsor we've got. Uh, they make all our shirts, the, the shirts I mentioned a minute ago, which you can order on our site, chrisryanphd.com. Uh, and they're going out, man. <laughs> I, got it. I got a photo. I guess a guy tweeted a photo of himself wearing one of the tangentially speaking uh, shirts uh, along the Mekong River. I don't know where, what country he was in. The Mekong goes from China through Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, into Vietnam. It's, it looked, he was standing next to a sign. I retweeted it, so if you're interested, you'll see it on my Twitter account. Um, I think he was in Vietnam, judging by the, the lettering on the sign. But it's just pretty cool. It's pretty amazing to see people all over the world wearing these shirts. And uh, I really appreciate everybody who sends me pictures or emails or, or anything of the sort. Um, I'm going to release two podcasts this week, so I'll, uh, I'll wait to uh, talk, to, talk uh, specifically about people who sent me emails and, and donations and stuff. I'll mention those in the next one because I'm standing in the yard right now and don't have my laptop with me. So anyway, thanks for listening to this. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'm going to release the Jason Goldman uh, episode uh, in a few days. That's the uh, he's a biologist, specializes in uh, all sorts of quirky, quirky animal behavior. He's based in L.A. and actually, uh, we talk about the the sort of um, ecology, the ecological uh, world of Los Angeles and the sorts of animals who live live here. Hope you're doing well wherever you are. Uh, it's a beautiful day in Los Angeles, as I said. We just got back from two weeks on a friend's boat. Maybe I'll talk about that a bit in the next podcast uh, intro, but I don't want to go on too long on this one. Hope you're doing well. If you're commuting, drive carefully, and uh, thanks for having us with you. Ciao. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you 
Dr. Stanton Peel, who is, there are so many ways to describe you. I could describe you as a friend. I could describe you as a world-renowned expert on addiction. Uh, I could describe you as um, a rabble-rouser. As someone who helped you get your book organized? That is, I was going to get into that. Yeah, your your role in getting Sex at Dawn published was uh, uh, essential, uh, very very important. When I was working on Sex at Dawn, I uh, started a blog on Psychology Today, and I don't remember whether it was you who read something I wrote or I read something you wrote. I remember something about French women. Somehow French women were involved. Did you Might write have a to do with sex? You think? <laughs> I think so. Anyway, one of us wrote something that attracted the attention of the other, and we started corresponding. And um, I mentioned sort of sheepishly that I was working on a book. Of course, it's sheepish because when you're talking to someone who, at that point, had published what half a dozen books at least, even more, ten, even more, so. ten or so, pushing a dozen books, you know, you tend to be sheepish. And uh, Stanton was. Uh, Extremely generous, not only with uh, encouragement, but reading chapters, giving me feedback. You became something of a surrogate uh, editor slash uh, father in some respects there and really, really helped me keep the faith while I was writing. You were a little bit stalled transitioning from your academic self, I recall, to your popular self. Your gifts were, as they are now evident, but you were maybe getting caught up a little bit sometimes, and I did as well, kind of being chained to some of your academic roots and feeling you had to touch every kind of base. Yeah, yeah, and so it was it was great having somebody like you who's got the academic uh, credentials as well as having published uh, for a popular audience to... Uh, to help me relax enough to give that up, you know, because I, I had written a lot of academic stuff up to that point, and I think I was sort of frozen in that style. And, uh, yeah, I remember you saying just, uh, yeah, just relax and let it go a little bit. I wouldn't yeah. say you were frozen in that style. Your, your clear writing gifts were evident, but you would sometimes get bogged down. Yeah. Much going back that way. Yeah. Why don't I mention, relieve you, I mean, you know, the first and the last of my books we maybe talk about a little bit more, but let me mention, of course, we're going to perhaps talk about Love and Addiction, which is my first book in 75. Then I wrote a book called The Meaning of Addiction, which is a little bit, which was more academic which and philosophical, and said, what exactly uh, has the meaning of addiction become and where has it been? And the idea that the meaning of addiction changes is something we have a hard time coming to grips with to this moment, even though it's changing at this very moment. And I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that with the SM5 and other developments. The uh, subtitle was uh, Compulsive Experience and Its Interpretation, which is, uh, introduces the idea of cultural and subjective interpretation of what being powerless means, which is very much not the direction we're going in. We're Mm. going in the direction of assuming and believing 
with not only no evidence, but evidence to the contrary, that somehow we inherit or acquire an inability to control our behavior, uh, specifically with one drug or another, or with a lot of drugs, or in general. And so, in some ways, we're moving away from my whole gestalt, and that's been a continuing battle. The next book I did was Diseasing of America, which is about how in America, it's a cultural analysis of how we diseaseify everything, which is a little bit, I think, in the direction you're going. We have a cultural tendency to decide that our reality is so real that it can't be countermanded. And I mean, I know some of the things you're thinking about now are uh, like, Americans think that you can't be exposed to germs or that you need air conditioning, that no human being could exist without them. And not only is that self-evidently not true, but in a larger perspective, you can see how these conceptions make us more susceptible to the very things that we claim they protect us from. In the case of germs... The hygiene hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. Well. And you were saying about air conditioning that we become yeah dependent on it. Right. Right. Before we started the before I got the tape rolling, uh, Stanton asked. I was describing the book I'm working on now, and Stanton asked about air conditioning, and we were talking about how, on the one hand, you sort of say, "Man, I couldn't live without it," but on the other hand, we were talking about how in Spain, where it's very hot culture has adapted in ways that make it possible to live without it and actually enrich the culture in some way. So you have a siesta during midday when it's too hot to work and then you have dinner at 10 p.m. and everybody parties till late at night and hey, you know, that's not bad, right? So there are a lot of adapt- adaptations that we make uh, to life without technological intervention that are culturally enriching. Another one that, that I think is crucial to mental health is community, right. right? That we depend upon one another for so many different things, whether it's child care or intimacy or food or, you know, help when we're sick and so on, um, that when it gets outsourced to either technology or, or institutions, uh, we are impoverished by that in a way. You were also mentioning with air conditioning that depending on air conditioning makes you more dependent on it. It makes you more dependent on it and then you know the ecological effects you know from the freon in the ozone to the you know the the carbon uh, footprint and all that and then there's also evidence that um, changes in uh, fluctuations in outside temperature and the body adapting to it is really healthy for the body. Uh, There's evidence that uh, to some extent um, weight gain is related to the fact that we're not going through these, our body's not adapting to changing temperatures as much because of air conditioning and heating. You know, so there are all sorts of sort of unexpected uh, consequences to these technological interventions that, uh, you know, when you were talking earlier about um, the diseasing of America and it just occurred to me how declaring a certain behavioral pattern to be a disease is very similar to the way we declare war on drugs, terrorism, 
you know, poverty, whatever concept. Declaring war on a concept is sort of similar to making a compulsive behavior a disease because it it creates the other that you can then attack or at least make money pretending to attack. The meaning of addiction, which came out in 85, has a whole chapter on the war on drugs. And, you know, I have some long-term relationship with Ethan Nadelman, who's the major drug policy reformer, because these ideas inherently work against the idea that um, addiction and drugs are external forces that we can attack. Yeah. Diseasing of America is about essentially how Americans feel that if we can label something a disease and um, dispense medical attention to it, then we've got it where we want it. Right. And we don't demand in any way, shape, or form, and this is something I'm sure you're getting into in your book and that your community, the, since the loss of community the reliance on air conditioning to be two examples, we never demand that our lives improve. Or we never pay attention. We don't say, well, we need to have this air conditioning, and then the fact that we lose medical benefits from it, we gain weight as a result of not having our bodies adjust readily. Um, The fact that, I mean, the war on drugs is the longest-running failing play in history. And I, I recently wrote a blog for Huffington Post saying, uh, which finally, in a couple of days, some major things happened. A judge said that the New York City police need to be monitored and how they frisk, stop and frisk. And the Attorney General, Eric Holder, said um, he's going to stop having prosecutors specify the level of drugs that were apprehended so as not to kick in mandatory sentences. Yeah. But both of those are so weird guard. There's such strange ways to approach it. Yeah. I mean, most of the people uh, who have any criminal result from being stopped and frisked have marijuana. Right. And the whole thing, Holder's saying, well, you know what? We shouldn't really get down on these people who just have some small amount of drug on them. So what we... What we'll do is, if they're really okay, we won't prosecute them so severely. There's such ass-backwards ways of dealing with these essential situations. But what I'm mainly about, let me tell you two big concepts for people. And if people who listen to this podcast get these concepts, I won't go so far as to say they'll be enlightened. <laughs> but a step closer. But exactly the same thing you said about air conditioning is true about mental health. Yeah. People have noticed something really strange, that every new mental health illness that we identify and attack, especially in the late 70s, just prior to dsm 4 where we identified for the first time ADHD, bipolar as opposed to manic depression, but also depression, all of them jumped alarmingly beginning, and also autism, which is in a somewhat different category, beginning in the late 70s through the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And we congratulate ourselves on how well we fight these things now. We use antidepressants, of course. We use antipsychotics. We use lithium for bipolar, along with other drugs. And yet, not only don't they ever decline any of these diseases, 
Not only do we only expand the number of people we discover who have them, but people do note something strange. These used to be self-limiting diseases in the 50s through the 70s. We had a concept called a nervous breakdown, yeah. which we no longer have. Yeah. A nervous breakdown is, well, they really flipped out. It's a temporary situation. And, you know, maybe send them to a sanitarium, maybe not. But we anticipate that in a few months or a year they'll regain their sanity. We don't have that anymore. Now people are identified as having an illness. They're given a prescription. And more often than not, it becomes a lifetime affliction. Why do you think that is? I think it's very similar to the pattern you described with air conditioning. Well, there's two parts to that. One is the dependence on this concrete drug and therapy but a second thing which is critical and we haven't gotten through all my books it's critical to what that title and me you know compulsive experience and interpretation and uh, we're going to jump what's the title of my last book that I, that I'm that's going to come out in February this is the the book where you talk about the the perfect. What, what's perfect stand for, by the way? Do you remember? Yeah. Well, it's seven steps in a kind of meditational Buddhist type, uh, beginning with pause, which is a mindfulness, hmm. and embrace, which is self forgiveness. We we incorporate uh, Buddhist concepts as cognitive behavioral techniques. But please oh, read great. the title. Yeah, the title is Recover. And the subtitle is Stop Thinking Like an Addict and Reclaim Your Life with the Perfect Program. Perfect being an acronym, of course. Now, the second thing, besides becoming dependent on the therapy, there's a self-conception issue that's so crucial, but it's beyond individual's ability to comprehend. Human, I mean, going back to the meaning of addiction, compulsive experience and its, interpreta- and its interpretation culturally and individually... We're not good at saying this experience I'm having, however compelling it is, uh, however compulsive it is, is something that has a subjective or cultural element. We're not good at being able to figure that out. Our reality is our reality. And diseasing of America is the extent to which we concretize that. We set it in stone or in concrete, and we say, well, this is the what it is. And that very activity of reifying it makes it more formidable, more intimidating, and less capable of being overcome. Mm. But an essential ingredient in that is how you think about it. There's actually research that shows that people who believe that alcoholism disease are more likely to relapse after treatment than people who don't believe it's a disease. Because they feel helpless confronting a disease. How can you, how can you think your way out of smallpox? Exactly. Yeah. And when you're, you know, and when you encounter things that happen to everybody after addiction treatment, either an urge to use, a temptation to use, or actual use, right. all of those things happen a lot. Right. You've become convinced that you only have one road to go. You have a disease. You can't resist this urge or right. the actual usage. And other research has shown people are more likely to embody the one drink, one binge phenomenon right. to the extent that they believe that that's inevitable. 
So let, let me, while we're here, let me just make sure everybody understands that you have been for, what, 25, 30 years, sort of what I would call the voice of reason in this whole addiction debate. Let's do the math. 1975 to 2000. Fuck, more. <laughs> 30, what is that, 38 years. Right. Holy shit. Okay, 38 years, you've been saying... Conceptualizing addiction as a disease is hurting, doing more harm than than help, right? Now, do you do you dispute uh, completely that addiction is ever a disease, or do you say sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, or how, depending on the substance, the person? What's what's your position? Well, addiction, which is the compulsive tendency to reuse something, having been exposed to it despite its destructive impact. Is never a disease. I mean, you certainly bad things can happen to you. You right. can die from, let's say, drinking too much. You, although m- most often people die with drugs and from alcohol from things that happen to them as not the drug itself. Right, and the car example, accident. Yeah. Uh, well, or you know, George McGovern's daughter died frozen in the street. Hmm. Um, the guy who, leaving Las Vegas, he had himself drinking himself to death. But in fact, that author killed himself. Yeah. It's harder to kill yourself with drugs and alcohol than you might expect. Usually people encourage it along the way. And that's a whole other thing that I pioneered, harm reduction. The idea that in America we think, I mean, an AA and disease model will say, well, quit it and you're done. Which is a funny kind of treatment. It says... Stop doing what you can't stop doing, and you're better. <laughs> Get but, better. You'll be better. But, in fact, that's not the way it works, even for people who swear by the disease here. As I said, they're more likely to relapse. And de- developing a whole cadre of approaches that go between, huh, maybe they'll never actually use this drug or any other drug or drink again for the rest of their lives. Let's say they're 20 or 30 or 40. You know, we're talking 50 or 60 or 40 or 30 years. That's not going to happen. What kinds of things can we introduce in between to prevent that from happening? By the way, now, before people start thinking I'm a kook, because I don't believe in the disease theory which is being sold time and again. Quite literally sold, by the way. But we can talk about that. um, After the Surgeon General's report was introduced by the late 1980s, uh, 25 million Americans have quit smoking. 90% of them, over 90% have quit by quitting. Did you ever smoke? No, not tobacco. People quit smoking on their own. Hmm. That it's That's still true, but it's gotten down to about 60% because we're constantly marketing the fact that you can't quit smoking on your own, uh, that you need some kind of chemical assistance. And as a result, a larger and larger percentage. I begin recover with the story about just the scientific proof that this whole way of thinking is counterproductive. There's a global initiative on tobacco out of Harvard. They've really invested themselves in what's called nicotine replacement therapy, which like nicorettes or right. patches. patches right. They did a study of people who had quit, who were then maintained by NRT or without NRT. They found no difference in their tendency to relapse. And in fact, here's the who would be the most needing 
of nicotine replacement therapy. You would think it would be the most High frequent, yeah. They were three times more likely to relapse on NRT than if they quit on their own. Really? Do you understand that, Chris? Is it because because they're... Well, you tell me. Why, why, why do you think that is? It's, it's, it's exactly what we've described. I think it's the process of thinking, well, I've quit my habit, but I've only quit it because I've, I haven't quit it. Well, I haven't quit it. I've transferred it to the patches. So I'm still a victim of this disease. Yeah. And a lot of things can go wrong with your patches. You know, one day they don't seem to be as effective or you don't, can't get them. Hmm. And now you believe you've, you've, you're a goner. Yeah. And, in fact, people have been quitting smoking. Your audience is going to, you know, I always say, well, here's something I do. This, I do it now. I go to a big addiction conference. There's a lot of people in the room. Did I do that in Paris when you saw me? Mm-hmm. I say, what's the toughest drug addiction? Quitting people correctly. And these are, as I say, experienced consumers. They shout out nicotine or smoking. And I say, oh, that's amazing. Has anybody in this room quit smoking? And of course, <laughs> half the crowd, right? More than half, because these are, you know, drug and alcohol abusers smoke more than average. Right. And I say, well, how many of you use nicotine replacement therapy or any other kind of therapy or hypnosis right. to get better? And often, in a room where 500 people have raised their hand, nobody will raise their hand and say they use it. Maybe five, maybe ten. Right. Yeah. So I'll go. Boy, that's unbelievable. You're in the business of addiction therapy. You've told me. You personally quit the hardest drug addiction to quit. By the way, I mean, I say the hardest addiction to quit of all is love addiction, but that's something else. And you did it without any kind of assistance or support group. What's that tell you? And it's so undermining that people start backtracking. They start saying, well, I mean, nicotine, sure, it's an addiction and it's hard to quit. But And they start coming up with explanations. But here's another pearl of wisdom for your audience a higher percentage of alcoholics and heroin addicts quit on their own than smokers because only about 50% of smokers have quit Hmm. maybe 55% certainly it varies by social class in fact quite 75% of alcoholics and perhaps even a higher percentage of heroin addicts have quit hmm so it's harder to be a heroin addict than a smoker, although it's gotten harder lately to be a smoker. And what's we have an entire addiction theory. We have, I mean, one thing I'm in full-scale battle against, little old me, you see my whole international operation here, this back house in Brooklyn, which you'd have a hard time describing to people. Um, and I'm fighting the largest drug organization in the world, the NI National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, headed by Nora Volko, oddly enough, yeah. the granddaughter of, of, of Trotsky, Leon Trotsky. Right. They spend <laughs> nine-tenths of the research, money on drug research. Their research is research on people who can't quit on their own. Right. That's what all their research is. We have some cocaine addicts here. Their brain lights up. That's why they can't quit. But... Dr. Volko, what about all the people whose brains lit up, but they did quit? Yeah. Do you know anything about them? And that's 
of course, the most important thing to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Study the people who have successfully escaped the prison, and you'll find how to escape the prison. You know, it, it's pretty amazing. Let, let me yeah. jump on. After yeah. I wrote Diseasing of America in 1989 and 1991, I wrote The Truth About Addiction and Recovery. And then in 2004, I wrote uh, Seven Tools to Beat Addiction. Both of those are com- they're a combination of self-help books because I did exactly what you described. Let's think about and study and ask people who quit addictions and find out how they've done it. However, they were actually combined into a treatment program. I partnered in, with something in creating a life process program which is a subtitle, actually, of the Truth About Addiction and Recovery. And I created a residential treatment program, mm. which was highly effective. We came to a parting of the ways, and it I'm not allowed to comment on it, but it had something to do with commercial interests. Mm. And I now have that online. But I went from, what is addiction? Um, how does the way you think about it impact it? to creating practical, behavioral, and motivational, and purpose-driven ways of fighting it, which became a treatment program. And recover, something like an addict, it gets all the way back to the meaning of addiction. If how you think about addiction is really crucial to being addicted, let's cut directly to the chase and let's address that core thing. How do addicts think? How do you think about your addiction? How can we change your actual thought processes? And we felt, I, I, my co-author, uh, you know her name, is Ilsa Thompson. And by the way, you did repay uh, some of my help to you by you know, helping me get a, a proposal and getting that book on track. And I was following your lead. We were hopscotching or whatever that, <laughs> leapfrogging, whatever that's called. And I'm not saying anything about the French when I say that. So... Um, the idea is using meditational and Buddhist concepts, how do we address directly those issues of mindfulness, being able to introduce a pause? Let me give you concrete examples for your readers. Right. People have urges to reuse something they've quit using. That happens all the time. The meditational Buddhist approach is to focus on that urge to experience that urge, to realize you don't have to give into it, and that the urge is kind of a thing in itself that you can ride with. I mean, you can use imagery like surfing or riding a wave or smashing it. And that is the opposite of the disease idea. The disease idea is that there's nothing in between. That that urge is in your, imprinted in your chromosomes. Yeah. There's no way to resist it. Uh, Buddhism and meditation are... Let's focus on how to reverse, ignore, overcome that urge. Right, which is separate from you, which which exists outside, whereas you are, yeah, that's so crucial. You know, very well. I'll have to use that. (laughs) Use it. Use Uh, it. It's outside of you. That's very much. And and you're you're not, it's not. It's not you. Yeah. That's exactly a key concept about the book. Yeah. Your addiction is not you. And AA tells you your addiction is you. I am an alcoholic. And you need the higher power. Right. Whereas you're locating the higher power within the person, him or herself. And one thing, we get into a little bit of nitty-gritty with uh, AA that I don't think people have done before. Uh, Some of the people working with the book had 
some direct experiences with AA. AA actually spends a lot of time on telling you that your feelings, those urges you feel to be empowered, are bad signs about you. They're actually signs of your selfishness, of your colossal conceit. There's an actual lot of work time in AA that's directed towards, if you're not feeling powerless enough, helping you to learn to feel powerless and to negate any sense that you are powerful. Mm. That's your addiction talking. Yeah. They'll say to you when you say, you know, I feel some greater ability. You know, I feel like I could go into a bar and not have a drink, or I feel like I could have a drink but not keep having that drink. One thing you, you might say, well, that's a good thing. I mean, we're not telling you to go to bars and have drinks, but it's good that you feel that way because you're going to pass some alcohol sometime in your life. Yeah, right. But that's not, AA says no, no. Yeah. That's stinking thinking. Right. That's oh, your egotism talking. Uh, thinking you can handle it. Yeah, right. Is a delusion. Yeah. What, what, it's, would yeah. you think of if you had a child, is that a way you would approach, if they had a weak area, you know, would you say, honey, I know you have trouble doing math. You're biologically incapable of doing that. <laughs> if you see a math problem and you feel you can deal with it confidently, that's a delusion. That's right. uh, uh, no other area of you, which is part of the whole point of recovery, because yeah. in other areas of life we realize how ridiculous that is. Yeah. And I mean, there are some big paradigms running around America now. One is everything's a disease, but another one is... You know, well, mindfulness is a giant thing, and 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 even before that kind of you know the consciousness era was about you know you can control an awful lot of things that happen to you by thinking constructively about them and realizing your own power. Yeah, we have an empowerment movement and we have a disempowerment movement, yeah. and part of what recover is about recover in italics with an explanation point is about. You know, we have, it's like cognitive dissonance. If you have two, or motivational enhance and interviewing, if you have two contradictory ideas in your mind, you have to work that through to get, you know, where you need to go. Like, uh, I can't stop smoking. I just had a baby and I want to live a long time so that I can take care of that baby. Okay, work with those two concepts. Huh. Well,. My uncle did quit smoking. Maybe I can quit smoking. Maybe that's something I can and should do. And we're, we're trying to do that both individually and on a broader cultural level by saying, you know, here's two different ways in our society we have of approaching problems. You know, they, they both can't be right. Mm. They're saying opposite things. All right, so we're going to take a, a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to get more into this the Buddhist aspect of what you're talking all about. Because right. as you know, I'm, I'm all about the multicultural approach to things. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back with Stanton Peel in uh, rainy Brooklyn. Beautiful rainy day in Brooklyn. Uh, home of Walt Whitman, one of my favorite poets. Spent some time in Camden, too, do you know? Yeah, yeah. There's a house. Is that after he went to the Civil War? He was a nurse in the Civil War. Horrible. Because God, what a horrible I grew up in experience. Philadelphia, and you used to take a something, a train across the bridge. Oh, right. a house in Camden. Right. 
interesting, crazy old homosexual. Lonely man, would you say? I think so. He apparently, I remember reading a story about um, when he published uh, Song or Leaves of Grass, and Emerson got a copy. Somehow somebody gave Emerson a copy, and at that point, Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of the most famous men of letters in the country. He read it and went crazy, wrote a beautiful letter saying, essentially, I've never heard of you, but you must have been working you know, on yourself for many decades to, to have created something like this. And Emerson actually uh, got on a train and came down, I don't know whether it was to Camden or to Brooklyn, to, to visit Whitman. And apparently he found Whitman lying in bed, uh, having with a like a bucket of shit under the bed because he had just taken a dump in the bucket and slid it under the bed. So it was relatively informal meeting, I would say. Things are a little better here in this back house. <laughs> just barely. It smells better, that's for sure. But, hey, informal's good. Uh, you mentioned Philadelphia. I wanted to just briefly touch on, like, how you got into all this stuff, you know, because a lot of a lot of these interviews I do, they're all with really interesting people, and we love to, I love to cover, you know, what makes them so interesting, the work they're doing and all that. But I also like to to just get into how how the hell did this happen? How did you become Stanton Peel, addiction expert? Yeah, before, I want to jump. I, there was one thought I hadn't completed, and then I want to jump to that. It's tangentially um, speaking. Baby, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders right. came out in May, which is the Bible of. For those who don't know, it's the Bible of, of psychiatrists and psychologists. It's what they look into to figure out, you know, what to call what's wrong with you. And yeah. let's go back to DSM four. I'm actually listed as a consultant on DSM four for substance use disorders. People don't know this about, and I, I have another business where I often point this out. Nothing in substance use disorders and remission in DSM-4 says not using again. It only you're in remission or recovery when you don't have problems, which is something I leaned on them to do. So let's say that again. DSM-4 does not define remission uh-huh. with in any regards to use or not use, only to the presence or absence of problem. Of a problem. So you may still be drinking, but you're not drinking to excess. Therefore, you're in remission, according to the DSM-3. Four. Four. In yeah. fact, it's it's even more advanced than that. It's con. It's which nobody realizes. It's had. It doesn't even say you could be drinking to excess, but you could avoid problems. Uh, avoiding problems means you're not getting, a, you know, the, the, it, DSM-4 specifies the kind of problems you can have, physical, legal, family. There yeah. are ways to avoid those problems with drugs and alcohol. Get divorced, quit your job. Drink, all, <laughs> drink only at home. That's your anti-civilization roots. <laughs> drink only in your basement. Uh-huh. Um, make sure to have nutrition when you drink. Right. Um, you know, avoid infections, which is all about harm reduction. So, unbeknownst to the public, DSM-4 is a harm reduction document. Let's mm. jump ahead to DSM-5. DSM-5, it's so complicated. DSM-4 and DSM-5, neither of them uses the word addiction with regards to drugs or alcohol. But the word addiction does appear in DSM-5. Mm. Do you know how it appears? No. It identifies a single behavioral addiction. Sex addiction. No. It considered sex addiction and didn't include it, although it has something 
complex and goofy called hypersexuality. Let's leave that apart. It's gambling addiction. Uh. And then it has one thing in another section, section three, under consideration. And if I gave you ten guesses, I know, no, you might get it. Gaming. Not gambling, but, you know, video, electronic type gaming. Uh. So remember we calculated, did we, that love and addiction and uh, is now... 38 eight years? years before this. American psychiatry... 38 years after love and addiction, recognized and labeled things as addictive other than substance use, which love and addiction, of course, did. It mentions gambling, it mentions eating, it mentions shopping, it mentions love and sex addiction. Hmm. 38 years after Archie Brodsky and I said addiction is not a chemical byproduct of drugs. Once you recognize that, you have to say, well, what is addiction? Addiction is an unhealthy, overwhelming involvement in something that provides you with a feeling of being okay and reassurance that has, in fact, detrimental effects for you. Nothing in that definition is related to a substance or a chemical structure. And so 38 years later, the American Psychiatric Association said, well, there's one thing that does that. One thing we've discovered, gambling. Although a lot of people are saying, you know, I do know people who are addicted to electronic games. I do know people who are addicted to sex. The concept can only expand by its own internal drive to go in a direction that I announced in my 20s. You know, Love and Addiction came out when I was 29. Mm. People are stunned that I'm still alive. You know, that book was... Reviewed in the first whole Lord's catalog as a revolutionary, <laughs> really, as a revolutionary concept. Wow, a whole new way of thinking about it. So, you might say this sounds like something Steve Martin would say. Yeah. Stan, how did you get to be such a fucking genius? He would say that about himself, you know. And he's a modest man, in fact. Of course. Uh, yeah. But you're you're trained as a lawyer, right? No. No. I thought you were a lawyer. I became a lawyer very late in life. Ah. I be, I went to I I got a law degree and joined the bar in 1992. I'm a psychologist through. Oh, okay. Oh, right. I went to psychology. I went to school in psychology. Right. Um, and I I think like a psychologist. I'm not a brilliant lawyer. I'm not not bad in oral argument. I'm so why did you why did you go to law school? I just thought I'd pick up another little trick while I was at it, and I happened to be living in New Jersey. <laughs> and I could go to Rutgers Law School for next to nothing, and it was just down the road. That's, it was like that's funny. It's like it was a no cost alternative. I could right. just go a couple nights a week and right. do that. Hey, I'm living in New Jersey. Might as well become a lawyer. Well, right. at yeah. Rutgers State Law School. Yeah. I'm not a genius as a lawyer, but I'm pretty quick on the uptake, so I could take those courses without right. too much anxiety. But I always, I've always thought like a psychologist. I always think about people's motivations. I've always been driven to understand why people behave in ways they do. And nothing impressed me more than addiction. And I used to have an introductory episode when I would begin a lecture. I'd say a lot of people feel I've come up with a lot of cutting-edge concepts. Uh, which I like in the course of what we've been talking about. I mentioned I began looking at addiction through cognitive behavioral therapy in my books. I looked at addiction as something beyond drugs. I talked about harm reduction. 
uh, I came up with all these concepts. You might wonder how I got into the addiction field. Well, I personally am not a drug addict or an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never actually worked in a treatment center. I don't. I now have started a treatment center, so <laughs> that doesn't work quite as well. And you know, sometimes I work there. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I never took a course about drugs or alcohol. It wasn't standard when I was coming up. Right. I got my PhD in 1971. To drugs and alcohol weren't part of the psychology curriculum. Really? Yeah. Bizarre as that is. So I hmm. made all of this up on my own. And, you know, people are going, huh? You're an addiction expert because you invented it? You came up with it on your, by yourself? How did, you get the, how did you decide that you're an addiction expert? And I said, well, you know, I wrote these books, and people looked at them. And, you know, <laughs> after I wrote Love and Addiction, I was invited. You've you spent a good deal of time in Canada. Yeah. There's a place called CAMH, you know, Canadian... Addiction and Mental Health Center. That used to be the Addiction Research Foundation. Yeah. They invited me to give their national keynote speech after I wrote Love and Addiction. Right. And, you know, people just said, huh. That makes you an expert. They were saying, <laughs> you know, I've always been thinking these things. Or somebody, a, a man named Rowdy Yates, uh, a couple of years ago, said something really nice. He's a Scottish heroin addiction researcher. He said... I'm working lately on people who were abused uh, as a part of, who were sexually abused as children as a part of their constellation of being addicts. And one of the researchers said, in many ways, the uh, relationship they have with their abuser is like the relationship they have with their drug. And he said, huh. And he was nice enough to just write this down. When Love and Addiction first came out, I read it, and it was the first book that made sense of the heroin addicts I saw on the street. And now, reading it these 38 years later, maybe it was 35 or 30 in his case, it struck me as just as relevant in a whole new way. It explained this internal mechanism for dealing with these people who've gone through both a kind of a sex addiction experience and a drug addiction experience. Right, which gets to the core of of your argument, if if I understand it correctly, which is that addictive behavior is, at least often, I don't know if you would say always, related to some absence of meaning in a person's life. Is that accurate? I would say it's, it's related to you know I'm we're doing I'm doing an ebook version with Archie Brodsky and his wife Vicky Roland of Love and Addiction. So I'm reading it pretty closely, and we talk a lot about a central gap in people's lives that they use an addiction to fill. We talk about a purpose as, mm. and a lack of purpose is allowing them to become addicted. In my therapeutic work, Recover, and the truth about addiction and recovery and seven tools of addiction, I got much more into this question. Why do people get over addiction? For example, we, we went through all the people quit smoking in the room. I think... Everybody listening to this podcast can guess. If I say to people, well, why'd you quit? They'd say, well, you know, I had a daughter, and I came home one day and said, Daddy, you know, they told me in school that smoke is killing you. Why are you going to kill yourself? Don't you love me? Or somebody said, you know, I just figured I had enough to live for now that I just thought I might as well give up all my addictions. 
it's not rather than being technique oriented like why don't you do x and y really the overwhelming thing about recovery which is most evident in natural recovery which is when people quit smoking one day is the meaning that they attach to the addiction and how it's interfering with what's more important to them in life the meaning that they have in life so there's two things about that one is how powerful meaning is and finding your meaning, which is something like motivational interviewing. Well, what's most, I mean, when you talk to a client, you say, well, tell me what's important to you in your life. And then they say, you know, my children, my health, you know, I like my job, I'm religious, whatever. And he, all answers are appropriate, unlike, you know, AA. And then you say, well, just talk about how your addiction impacts that which is getting back to that kind of cognitive dissonance idea. Right. And, of course, then there's a question, well, some people have little meaning in their life, and then, but the answer then becomes, where do they find meaning? How do they construct meaning? How do they recreate meaning in their lives? And that becomes the key element. So it's tr- the meaning of addiction, I mean, I do talk about the absence of meaning and the absence of purpose of people's lives, but for me, meaning is a tremendous therapeutic tool. And I, I'm not an expert on this at all, but it seems to me that there is a lot of meaning uh, embedded in the rituals that are associated with many addictions. I think if you talk to a lot of uh, heroin addicts or, or you know, people who are into whatever cocaine or whatever they're into, there's there's meaning even if it's not explicit but there there's a satisfaction that comes from the ritual of getting it cutting it you know cooking it if in the case of heroin the people the places those things sort of accrue meaning over time right? the meaning of addiction is what does addiction mean to you right and part of what addiction means to you is what the culture tells you it means to you you uh-huh. need alcohol you need right. drugs part of it's what you say I can't live without of it. And part of it is all the meanings you impute to it. In love and addiction, and again, in the meaning of addiction, I say, here are seven reasons why addiction is not a medical, biological phenomenon. And one of those is ritual. Ritual is crucial. There are an infinite number of people who refuse to accept non-ritualistic replacements. For example, there are a lot of people who won't take nicorettes instead of smoking. There are a lot of people who will never find methanone satisfactory as a replacement for heroin. There's a, a famous study that always amused me where a group of heroin addicts went to England from Canada where they were able to be maintained on heroin, and they came back to Canada. The majority, vast majority came back to Canada, and they said, you know, I just didn't want to go to a doctor's office and shoot up heroin. That, that's the whole... That's not the whole... whole game isn't in there. <laughs> right. So the ritual... The lifestyle, right. the social associations, that's crucial both for defining what the person, being addicted to an experience is my crucial way of explaining that. What goes into the experience of taking a drug? An awful lot of things. Yeah, there's a huge context associated. The community. So this leads to, to one of my you know, pet uh, subjects, which is how does addiction 
How does the experience of addiction or the framing of addiction differ culturally? So, I mean, are you familiar with other cultures in like in Japan or China or, or whatever or Native America? I know there's a huge uh, issue with addiction in Native American societies that have, uh, you know, been decimated. And, and also there's some biological underpinning, lack of enzymes in Asians for uh, alcohol well, metabolism. Let's, let's jump to that. Yeah. What groups lack the enzyme for metabolizing alcohol? There's more than one. Yeah, group. Asians and Native Americans, which are from the And Asian. which group has the highest alcoholism rate in America? Native Americans, Eskimos. Which has the lowest rate? The lowest rate of alcoholism as a, as a racial group? Hmm. Good Chinese question. Chinese Americans. Uh, a man actually did a study in Cantonese Chinatown. Huh. He reviewed the arrest records for... 20 years, 17,000 Chinese people arrested. Not one arrest hmm. involved or mentioned public drunkenness. Really? Interesting. So then that completely undercuts the notion that there's a biological explanation for and the both alcoholism. Both Chinese and Indians incur Asian flush because they lack the mechanism of bringing in that right. aldehyde, the first right. breakdown from alcohol. So then... So I so you're left with cultural, yeah. So then you have to say, oh, well, biological differences either make you very susceptible to alcoholism or very uh, resistant to alcoholism. And that's <laughs> the same mechanism. And, that, and that's then you nonsense. might think, well, the Chinese have that really tight-knit community, highly yeah. achievement-oriented. Right. And uh, Indian American and Native culture was decimated. And they're, they're one... Oh, we're just, we're, uh, can we uh, uh, yeah, we can pick up a neighbor's coming through here. Hi. That's all right. We're- all right, so we were just talking about Native Americans and the and the enzyme uh, issue uh, hypothesis. Yeah, hypothesis, right? I mean, you and I, I think, have reflected, because we spent time in Europe together, and the culture in Europe, I actually wrote a blog, you might, you just commented on, you tweeted my... Oh, uh, the 15 greatest... <laughs> Feels 15 greatest and the number one is and alcoholism yeah. bombs Spain. Yeah, exactly. I do. I read Spain that. Spain yeah. doesn't deal with alcohol like Americans. In America, if you drink alcohol young, they say, "Well, that makes you an alcoholic." Right. In Spain, the drinking age is supposedly 16. Yeah. But there really is no drinking age. Right. They'll give wine to anybody. And kids anybody. are allowed in bars. You see, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a prohibited space for kids at all. And it's not yeah. a prohibited substance for kids. Right. And by every measure, Spain and Portugal have the lowest rates of alcoholism in Europe. Portugal also, of course, legalized every drug that people use for personal consumption. Right. They don't have a puritanical, temperance-oriented conception. Perhaps I won't surprise you when I say uh, I'll remind you that America had a national prohibition of alcohol in 1920 to 1933. You recall that. I know you're a student of American history. Uh, Spain not only never had national prohibition, the idea of national prohibition, people would just look at you like, well, are you going to eliminate rice and beans too? Yeah. Is that, we're not, you're not going to have wine or port. Yeah. Um, by the way, I also know you and I share a great appreciation for uh, Mark Twain, and in particular yeah. Tom Sawyer. You remember Pap? When Pap got the calling to give up drinking, do you remember? Mm, no. 
it's in uh, Huck Finn's father. Huck's father, you know, the Reverend brings him in. Yeah. He swears he takes a temperance pledge. Uh-huh. You don't recall that scene. Do you imagine it lasted quite a long time? Is, no, I imagine he got drunk and came home and beat yeah. Huck and they left. But Well, he fell off a stanchion, whatever oh. that is, and he broke his arm. <laughs> oh, all right. Now, I mean, Samuel Clemens is not a temperance-type mentality. Right. Um, it's not his way of thinking. So that whole temperance underlie in America, which is present more or less to some degree in every English-speaking culture and Scandinavian cultures, is completely absent in Spanish, Southern European, Greek, Italian cultures. They don't think, this substance is evil, it can take control of you, we need to ban it entirely. If you drink too much, the only solution is to quit and give it up, or otherwise you'll be driven to your death. That whole, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. we think of that as some great modern medical discovery. It's an invention of... American Protestantism in the 19th century. Sounds Islamic in some sense. You know, the alcohol is evil. And Islam shares it. That's one uh, one ironical thing is that America is more in common with certain aspects of Islam, temperance, and sex, and drugs, and alcohol than the rest of Western Europe. Yeah. So... You and I think you and I might have exchanged this, and you mentioned community early in this conversation. In Spain, um, I, I don't know. I might have sent you this article. You might have sent me this article, where a guy was he was English speaking, and maybe he was English, and he had a Spanish wife, and he said, "My wife early in our marriage explained to me that we could uh, move anywhere in the world." that it would be possible for her to have lunch with her mother and two sisters three times a week. That's a joke. <laughs> that sounds Spanish, yeah. That's good. And that whole gestalt, yeah. their whole concept of alcohol, their whole sense of community, it gives a different meaning. to uh, Alcohol is only drunk in a community context. People don't go home on their own and drink all night like, yeah. An American or an alcoholic yeah. might do. Yeah. They don't go to bars with a bunch of men and beat each other in the back watching sports. They drink yeah. in a familial cultural context. We're talking about the meaning of addiction, the meaning of the addictive experience. Something about consuming alcohol, usually in the form of wine with a meal with your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, instills in that in a completely different meaning. It doesn't offer the possibility of manliness and escape right. and consciousness eradication. Escape, I think, is the key. It's really in Canada where we are. Everyone is so fucking polite. You know, you get like they get off the bus. You get on the bus, and the bus driver says hello, and you say hello, and it's all really pleasant. But getting off the bus, like way at the back of the bus, everybody says thank you to the driver. It's amazing. It's like it's another world, right? But man, when they get drunk, they're out there howling in the streets like wild animals. It's unbelievable. So it's Cassie says it's like what Sweden. You you were you know Cassie lived in Sweden for a. While. Now remember, Escape, I you know? said English speaking and Scandinavian. And Scandinavian, yeah. The Norwegians are the nicest people in the world. And you go to Norway and you notice certain things that are so you see public drunkenness. You know, I know people, I knew a guy from Liverpool who moved to Rome and he said, I never saw somebody drunk in the street. And he came from Liverpool, which was a regular Liverpool, right, yeah. 
in Oslo, the nicest, politest people, you see people reeling around all the time. And on a Sunday morning, you go walking in the park, you see well-dressed people laying on the ground where they fell over a Saturday <laughs> yeah. night. Yeah. Unbelievable. In Japan, too. I've never been to Japan, but I hear that's yeah. drinking till you're stumbling and puking is sort of expected as part of a business meeting or something. Pretty amazing. Sorry. All right, we're back. That was we, we just had an Islamic cons- consultation here. Can you can you summarize a little, Chris? Who gave it? And uh, what uh, was well, said? yeah, Casilda was uh, chiming in there in the distance. Unfortunately, I don't have three mics, so we're limited to to two. But Cassie was saying that uh, just talking about the similarities between the prohibition on alcohol and the prohibition of pork in Islamic culture. Now you know, speaking of Jews, I mean, people are constantly looking for Jewish alcoholics because. That proves that that myth that Jews aren't often alcoholics. Every time they do an actual survey, though, I mean, you can find Jews at AA meetings. It's not impossible in New York or L.A. Every time they do an alcoholism survey, and everybody, the researchers announce, well, we know that alcoholism rates have risen a lot for Jews. We know a rabbi who told us about it many. They can't actually find hardly any alcoholic Jews. So why is that? You think the culture is just built around avoiding that sort of excessive behavior? It's an interesting question. The Jewish culture has been known as a moderate drinking culture since time immemorial. They had a big exhibit, by the way, at the Museum of Jewish History about mm. that. It's They were known compared to their other Semitic neighbors as being people who drank alcohol in the form of wine religiously as a part of ceremony as opposed to having orgiastic kinds of ceremonies. Right, like the Romans. Like the Romans and uh, like uh, other Semitic tribes there, which led to the banning by Muhammad of alcohol altogether. The Jews have been known as modern drinking. Oh, here's a quiz question. Mm -hmm. Only one person appears drunk in the Old Testament. I would say God himself, drunk on power. Noah. Noah, wow. And of course... Jesus was Jewish. You know, there are, in the Bible, the New Testament, there were accusations that that Jesus imbibed wine too freely. (laughs) And, you know, I wrote another book, Addiction Proof Your Child. I was interviewed with my daughter, Anna, who you know. Oh, that's right. Anna, right. Met her in France. And the CNN announcer, uh, who was Jewish, said, well... Yes, but that wasn't really wine in the Bible, which is a constant thing that Baptists talk about, mm. uh, was grape juice. And I say, do you think grape juice keeps very long in the Middle East uh, without, without becoming wine? <laughs> yeah. What would you think it takes to ferment wine? I yeah. mean, that's why, yeah. by the way, we can go all into this. There's a whole, we were looking at my books here. I, uh, I wonder if I can pick it out here. A number of biologically oriented archaeologists have pointed out that every single center of civilization fermented, they found fermentation of alcohol. Yeah. And these guys go into great lengths explaining how alcohol seems to have been fundamental in many ways to the development of civilization, to art, to religion, to music, uh, to 
many social aspects of what civilization is about. Certainly to literature, if we're looking at uh, Irish literature in any case. So what about, what about since we're talking about uh, the use of, of mind-altering substances in culture, what about uh, hallucinogens? We were talking about Andrew Weil during the break, and uh, you know he's... Uh, obviously, his first five or six books are all about uh, hallucinogens and consciousness and mind-altering substances. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the founders of Alcoholic Anonymous took well, LSD. It's famous for using LSD. But let's, right. I know that's a big interest of yours. But let's talk about something Andrew Weil talked about way back, The uh-huh. Natural Mind. He's often pointed out that cocaine was used naturally. Oh, coca. Yeah. As a coca, yeah. it was chewed by the natives. It was right. an energizing, and I've heard him talk and, and about and very healthy. Uh, yeah, it's a nutritional. That, that uh, distilled co- cocaine, concentrated cocaine, was a, a manifestation for Westerners. And I heard Andrew talk about this decades ago, where he went back to some of the tribes that he was familiar with, which used coca moderately as a part, and then he saw them become falling down drunk. They've they've replaced cocaine with alcohol. Right. And it's been a completely negative experience. So the question you're asking is, I, I think, and it's, and all of a sudden it's become tremendously relevant. By the way, I have a side industry. I actually work with a woman named Debbie Goldsbury. We actually came up with 10 rules for sensible cannabis use. And that all of a sudden... Do we, do we need to, the, all of a sudden, that's become kind of relevant in a big way because, as we've been dis- we discussed, uh, cannabis is now legal in Colorado and Washington. It's not going to stop there. So all of a sudden, we have a question. Well, how do you learn how to drink alcohol? Do you only become is the only way that you learn to drink alcohol to go to college and learn at a fraternity, or to join the armed services? And, and most people would agree that really doesn't make sense. I mean, the question to ask any parent is, how will your child learn to drink alcohol? And there has to be an answer to that. Yeah. And one answer a lot of parents give is, they won't go, I don't care, but they'll say, I don't know. And I say, you know, I, is that a very responsible thing to say? You know, a certain number of people go to fraternities and die of alcohol poisoning. Yeah. Um, is that really... Is that your plan that you hope your son or daughter doesn't happen to them? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of negative consequences happen from that. And and now we're going to be in a position, it's really an interesting time. Well, how does a child learn to smoke marijuana? I mean, I wrote a book called Addiction Proof Your Child where I advised and described how people regularly and frequently um, in, in many, in Spain, and in European cultures, teach your children to drink. Jews do that. Uh, that woman was claiming it was grape juice. In Passover ceremony, you pass the wine cup around five times, and everybody in the room, including five-year-old children, drink from it. Um, you're being taught how to consume alcohol in a constructive way. Somewhere down, and I couldn't in addiction proof your child say, well, think about this in regards to marijuana or other drugs, because... You know, I always got lynched for saying that about alcohol in today's uh, cultural climate. But somebody's going to have to ask the question, how is your child going to learn how to smoke marijuana in a state where it's legal and where they're going to go to college at 
of course, it's already happening. Well, luckily, with marijuana, you don't have the overdose. You know, you, nobody dies from marijuana poisoning. So that's... Uh, but people do die of alcohol poisoning. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm We're saying. We're already avoiding... Yeah. Yeah. We're already avoiding giving people uh, training in how to drink alcohol. Well, it reminds me of, of uh, sex, right? How do we teach our kids about sex? You know, if if we taught, you know, you I I thought sex was the, a unique example of this, but now uh, you've pointed out that alcohol is another example of this, where we, it's one of these weird areas in life where we don't want older people to teach younger people how to do things. Every other part of life you know you go to school expressly to have older people teach you younger people how to do math and think about science and whatever it is you know uh driving we learn to drive you know driving instructor who's older than you teaches you how to drive if think about if we if we taught kids or let kids learn how to drive the way we let them learn how about sex like go out and teach each other, kids. You know, talk about the blind leading the blind. It's it's that, incredible. That might have been the thing we talked about with France. I did write a blog for Psychology Today. Should mothers teach their daughters to enjoy sex? Did you read the recent thing? A father wrote to his daughter that went viral online. What did uh, say? he basically said? Look, you know. Uh, I know you don't want to think about me having sex. I don't want to think about you having sex, but I want you to have sex. It was in response to uh, something that had gone around where a father was sort of saying, uh, you know, like, jokingly saying, you know, I'll kill anybody who tries to fuck my daughter sort of thing. You and I had a, you and I actually had a contretemps on that. Oh, did we? I pointed out that Obama made that kind of really awkward comment about his two daughters because there was a rock group that they really liked and he said something like if any of you try and you know come near my daughters and I said a drone strike or something yeah Uh it it was before drones were so big and I said gee that's a strange comment to make you defended well they're little girls I mean this is about you know his 18 year old daughter or something you know who's obviously a sexual being isn't that a funny comment to make about your daughters like don't you ever you know it's so tawdry. Yeah. Well, you're still defending him. You're a real Obama fan. Well, no, it's the I, I've lost my Obama luster. luster. I'll tell you. But yeah. by the way, after I wrote "Addiction Proof Your Child," which of all my books I feel in some ways the most brilliant, it, it wasn't as let's say successful as my self-help books and "Diseasing of American Love and Addiction." I proposed to my publisher an equivalent book about sex. How will children learn about sex, to enjoy sex, and to experience sex? And the publisher said, boy, we're just not going there. (laughs) And the the editor was a young man. He was in his 20s who graduated from Columbia. And he said, "Uh, boy... You know, yeah. not, nice try. It's not going to happen. You know what? I'm I'm slipping that into the book I'm writing now. You, you've uh, you've done amazing things that way, Chris. You got a golden touch that I. Well, we'll we'll see if it works this time. But, yeah, definitely trying to slip that into this one. Also trying to slip in a discussion about how teenage male sexual frustration is uh, an undiscussed but uh, extremely important uh, phenomenon in, in Western life. Certainly, in American life. So that's a pretty natural bridge. From uh, you do talk about in Sex at Dawn. It's hard to describe our current arrangement 
as being a hundred percent satisfactory in terms of marital satisfaction and you know divorce and cheating so you're taking it one step further and saying you know how's this paradigm working for young people right and what sort of adults does it create you know much like you're saying the prohibition of moderate intelligent use of alcohol as a teenager creates binge drinkers Right. And I'm saying sexually, it's sort of the same thing, you know, the same pattern. We refuse to let these there's not a smooth transition into adulthood. There's not a a moderate education of how to interact with these various parts of life. So we end up with, you know, binge fuckers, I guess we would call them, you know. By the way, we mentioned the fact that, you know, you played some role in me formulating my proposal for Recover, my latest book. When we met in Paris, you had a a copy of Love and Addiction, and I, you know, autographed it. And one reason you were reading it was because that's an interesting topic for you. I mean, obviously, you know, Sex at Dawn and Love and Addiction is about, well, how does the the extremes of mutual isolated attachment what is that yeah what and that's part it's part of this western social model where you you have a couple and you say okay you're gonna get married maybe you're gonna meet in college you're gonna be completely faithful for the next 70 years not only gonna be faithful you're really not even allowed to spend time with somebody of the opposite sex who's not your mate maybe even with some friends the american ideal of the isolated a homogenized, overly tight couple is nowhere ever else like that story we talked about Spain. We can live anywhere in the world as long as I can have, you know, lunch with my mother and two sisters three times a week. Yeah. The American isolated coupling and the exclusion of the entire community is really notable. And I know part of the reason you looked at love and addiction was that I was moving in some of the same directions you were. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's the same the same pattern that replicates itself, you know, culturally with uh, devastating effects for a lot of people. Now, back to what we were talking about. Are you familiar with Evil Gain? Do you know what I'm talking about the African um, root or ibogaine? It's probably called in America. I, I sometimes pronounce things with a Spanish. I'm aware. <laughs> There's a lot of talk. Ibogaine's been around for a while. There's been quite a bit of talk now, which is fascinating, about the use of psychedelics and therapy right. for various kinds of addiction. Yeah. Which is already, uh, it's not AA to start with. Yeah. And, you know, since these drugs are generally illegal, LSD, among others, in the first place, and they're looked at as a drug of abuse, of course. All of this evolution and development is something I talk about in Love and Addiction. Mm. I talk about the therapeutic use of LSD and marijuana. All of it breaks down these categories of, oh, drugs create addiction, they're in the bad pile, and love and whatever is in the good pile, sex we don't know about. Uh, And therefore, those bad things can become addictive, and these good things can't become addictive. The fact that all of those categories don't work is something that I've been fighting forever. Yeah. However, it's not the nature, and we were talking with uh, Kathy, your wife, about the idea that uh, you really need to look at all dimensions of any kind of a problem. We talked about meaning. I don't believe in general 
you cure people of addiction by giving them a new drug, which is the, we talked about methadone, mm. we talked about nicotine replacement. Right. There are drugs that block the effect. I mean, for example, what if you could successfully block the effects of cocaine and then you gave it to a cocaine addict? What would be the result? Well, if you think that cocaine is fulfilling some function in their life, they'll stop taking the drug that blocks the effects or they'll find another drug that works pretty well. Right. Or experience. Yeah. Or experience. Yeah. Exactly. Gambling and it might or be, money or whatever. Yeah. That's 100% where yeah. so I'm going with that. So, you know, I'm always interested in the use of alternative therapies, including psychedelics. By the very conversation we've been having here about the way the addictive experience is multifactorial, it incorporates all aspects of your life, your social group, your, the meaning you attach to it, and everything that goes into that. I'm not inclined to believe that there's a one-shot solution, and I, and I wouldn't, I, I don't think that's a good way to approach people. As with the Nick Red story, here's mm. the deal: we're going to give you a drug that cures your addiction. Uh, but if you should stop taking this drug, you're screwed. But see, that uh, hallucinogen or psychedelic therapy is very different from Nicorette's in the sense that uh, Ibogaine, for example, which is what I'm most interested in right now, that's a one you take it once. You're not going to take that again. That's not a, something you take over and over again. The experience lasts three days. It's a it's a really heavy uh, sort of uh, personality altering experience. And um, you know, listeners who've taken LSD or something, from what I've heard uh, from people who've done this, it's like ten times stronger than the strongest LSD trip you've ever had, and it lasts three days. So you're like way out. And there's a restructuring process that apparently happens, and uh, in uh, upwards of ninety percent of the people who've done this, that I mean, I don't know how uh, methodologically sound the studies have been, but a very high percentage of the people who have gone through this it's not that they're able to quit it's that they're just done they're different they've changed in some permanent structural way um, that uh, that removes the the yearning for whatever it was that they were addicted well, to I don't believe that. <laughs> well here are two reasons I don't believe it. okay I've been hearing I has been talked about for decades it's not a new concept there's right. one guy who's famous for coming his name's similar to mine, actually. His name's Beale. He was arrested at some years back for some other drug malfeasance. And I don't. When people say, "Oh, this therapy cures ninety percent of addiction of any sort," I don't believe it. Um, I don't believe that. You know, it, I don't believe that people are going around saying, "Oh, here's something that's incredibly effective. It cures everybody. Let's not use it." I don't believe that's the way the world works. I believe that if people took these things and it worked that well. We know about it. Well, we do know about it. I just told you about it. What the fuck is that? What kind of argument is that? Stories like this for several decades. But here's the way I think about it, for better or for worse. Um, I think of it as being like pickup sticks, Uh where you throw the sticks down. I believe that LSD and Ibogaine are really effective for saying, let's start a lot of this over again. You know you have some patterns of thinking and we talked about that. Right. There's certain rituals you're involved in. Let's cast that all to the wind and let's start again. You're and you're a lot smarter nowadays than you used to be, you know what I mean? You'd probably prefer not to be a heroin addict, all things 
going. Right. You know a little bit more about what people who aren't heroin addicts look and live like. Right. Cocaine yeah. addicts. You know, they have a job. They probably settled down. These yeah. are things that people learn gradually with help, maybe right. sometimes on their own. I think that psychedelic experiences can help throw the sticks on the ground and allow you to rebuild them. But I don't believe mm. that they naturally fall in a really neat TP pile. That well, works. Okay, now see, I think, I, I think we agree on that because it's not uh, necessarily that there's some magical uh, substance that is going to take away the addiction. It's that by, it's having this profound, meaningful experience in your life, spiritually, deeply meaningful that you couldn't have possibly imagined there's a placebo effect we could say or at least it gives you a structural moment in your life where you say wow okay from now on i'm different that blew my fucking mind and now life after that experience is necessarily different just because i couldn't have imagined that what is a shaman's job yeah exactly i think that's exactly what we're talking about and that's why somebody has that experience and when you come to the other end of it say okay where are we going but you know what's interesting about shaman is that generally it's the shaman who takes the drugs it's it's very interesting in shamanic healing. Often, if you come to me, I'm the shaman. You come to me with a, you know an issue. I'm the one who takes the drugs, and then I go into the other world trying to find what the cause of your issue is, and then come back and report it to you. That's yeah, but which reminds me very much of the early days of LSD when psychiatrists were taking LSD as a way to understand psychosis better and therefore help their patients. When Sandos was selling really, it directly, really, this is you're stimulating me to new thinking. I mean. Motivational enhancement as a therapy technique and the meaning of addiction is about understanding. In a disease model of addiction, a guy comes in and you say to him, you have a disease. You can't stop drinking. A whole other therapeutic way is to say, let me try and understand what alcohol, what role it plays in your life. You might even think in some crazy place they might go out and get drunk together. I want to see how you drink. I want to feel why you drink that way. I want to know yeah. when you start babbling yeah. what the hell you babble about. Ah, right. And so one thing I do in therapy is I say to the person, tell me about your drinking. You know, is it a problem or does it create problems? Tell me why you drink. Tell me what it does for you. Tell me everything about it. Tell me why you like it. Tell me why you don't like it. And, of course, the disease theory doesn't have that. It doesn't have alcohol. One of the 15 greatest Stanton Peel hits was why alcoholics drink. It assumes that there's some purpose in there. It's become distorted and distended. But the shaman's saying, you know, I'm trying to get with you. Yeah. I don't don't have a problem in particular, but the only way I'm going to understand your problem is to somehow participate in it or experience it with an open mind and so one of the things that makes my skin crawl the most is when they do motivational interviewing demonstration tapes where they show the therapist manipulating the person towards a goal that they have in mind which is to me the exact opposite right where that where what we're talking about is let me understand an experience and you know there are people in harm reduction therapy whom i admire who say this person's not going to quit taking barbiturates or cocaine. That's not going to happen. Uh, I mean, look at their life. Look at how they think about it. Look where they're at. What we have to do is to construct a reality that accepts and recognizes that, and I have to appreciate it. It's sort of like, you know, 
a date where the guy won sex and the woman doesn't want sex. It's like the therapist working with the client saying, you got to quit, you got to quit, you got to quit, you got to quit. And the person saying, well, I don't know if I want to quit. Um, I don't know if I can quit. Uh, okay, I should quit, and then they don't quit. And, you know, that's all, in AA, that's all denial and needs to be repressed and hammered down. And yet, everybody knows that 95% of the people that go to AA don't end up, like, abstaining for the rest of their lives. We already know that the number of people who go say, you know, you're right, I'm just going to quit. And they probably decided that before they walked in that room. It's minuscule. Hmm. I have a whole, another routine I do is I'll, take, I'll go to somebody and I'll say, um, I know the answers to these questions, but, but my answers in there is rarely diverge. I say, what percentage of all the alcoholics in the United States actually end up in AA? The answer is actually only 10%. And I say, of all the people who go to AA, what percent stay with it and quit drinking and just get with the program? And the answer is... Less than 10%. Let's say it's 10%. So we're down now to 1 in 100 alcoholics. Well, there's a lot of alcoholics in America, so that you still got a good business with that 1 in 100. But I say, well, who's looking after the other 99%? What do we have to offer them? Mm. And the things we're talking about are, you know, working within their interest system for them to say, you know, you're right, I'm going to quit smoking. Or I'm not going to, but... Not, I'm not going to right now, but, you know, maybe we can prevent me from dying. Yeah. You know, the best example of that, of course, is a needle exchange. There's only... Here, I just... You know, uh, speaking of uh, presidents you may or may not admire, you know, Bill Clinton is doing a big AIDS prevention thing now. Hmm. Do you remember who Bill Clinton's drugs czar was? General Barry McCaffrey. Oh, Barry McCaffrey. Let's get Such a an general. Asshole. A real asshole general, too. I, I, and he was 100% yeah. against needle exchange. Yeah, yeah, the whole war on drugs thing. He took. Do you know hundreds uh, of thousands of people? The United States is the last Western country. The first AIDS epidemic was gay men, the second AIDS epidemic was uh, IV drug users. The United States was the last Western country to implement clean drug programs. I lived in New Jersey. The last state in the union was Governor Whitman. Everybody thinks he's a great moderate. She actually appointed an AIDS commission in the late 90s, and she appointed you know, a politically reliable guy. And the guy said, you know, I've studied it, and the single thing we can do is needle exchange. And she, yeah. she fired him. And he they actually estimated how many addicts would die. The guy was... Uh, that kind of a mentality and I calculated on one of my blogs that Christine Whitman killed 7,000 addicts themselves and that's not counting pediatric AIDS that they got and get Barry McCaffrey, so the Clintons are now going to prevent AIDS around the world but they killed yeah. several hundred thousand human beings right. by appointing that asshole general yeah. Barry McCaffrey who reminds me of one of those guys you see in the balcony in a Muppets uh, TV program. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a, a visceral reaction to that guy. And he, well, we won't get into that. Because you know what happens to people who criticize generals? You, you heard about this guy whose car blew up in L.A., the journalist who who broke the story in Rolling Stone about uh, the General McChrystal? 
His car blew up? Oh, yeah. Like his car blew up at 3 o'clock in the morning. It blew up and veered off the road and slammed into a tree, and the transmission ended up somehow 100 yards behind the point of impact. Very interesting stuff. You and uh, I, Michael uh, Hastings. areas that we disagree on within some, <laughs> Our anti-militarism, the idea that our society should be run by generals, the epitome in terms of our little conversation. Let's appoint a general to head the drug control policy. Right. Yeah, Because it's the war on drugs. Fucking idiots. And at that yeah. point, everybody, by the early 90s, everybody already knew the needle exchange worked. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a there's a great. I, I wish I spoke Dutch, just so I should learn this one phrase because I keep coming back to it in in so many different conversations. But there's a phrase in Dutch, which is translates to "you must tolerate something to control it." Right? That seems so fucking obvious, right? But it's what's missing in the American approach to whatever. Right. Whether it's drugs, sex, terrorism, you know, poverty, crime, you know, we seem to be resistant as a culture to taking that step into understanding the thing we're fighting. Because I think as we're such a warlike society, we're afraid it'll take the fun out of the war. You don't want to understand your enemy. Your next book? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I've got too many big themes. We'll I see. Mean, obviously, we've mentioned Buddhism before. And the tolerate to control certainly will be. I don't know how far I'll run with it. But, but I mean, yeah. Buddhism is a non-control. It's not even worth calling it. A, I mean, religion's yeah. a bad name. Right. It's a non-control approach to life. You yeah. Know, you don't. Get, let's get back to where we started. You don't say, I can't have a desire to take smoke marijuana again or a cigarette again. It says, Yeah. Exactly. This is where we began the right, conversation. Right. That urge happens. We know it happens because I'm having it. Right. The idea is to float with it, to accept its reality, right. in a sense, to accept its goodness. Yeah. And then just say, Well, where are we going with this? And right. the very act of accepting it. Is how you is a, is a variety of Western therapy. Yeah, yeah. Well, a phrase we quote in Sex at Dawn is Schopenhauer saying, "Man cannot control what he wants to do; he can only control what he does." Right. Right. And I think that gets at the core of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, so much of this re- relates to that essential truth that we the only in Buddhism I, there's the expression. Uh, you know, we can't control what happens to us. We can only control what we do in response to it. It's the right. same thing over and over again. Yeah, I agree with you. Buddhism shouldn't even be called a religion. Anybody can call themselves Buddhist, right? Nobody gives a shit. There's no initiation. You don't pay money to anybody. Um, you know, it's... They don't have a higher power. Right. There's no God that they're intervening between you and the God. You know, it's, there's a very... There have been a series of... The Supreme Court hasn't dealt with it. There have been a series of... U.S. appeals court, circuit court decisions, the last of which was Inui, who was a Buddhist, who was in prison, and when he got out, they said, well, you have to go to AA, and he went to AA, and he says, huh? This is nothing, and they made him go anyhow, because we're America, and this is little known. People think the decision was that the Ninth Circuit Court, which covers... Oregon, where you may be spending some time in California, 
They didn't say uh, a state is not allowed to assign somebody to AA against the religion because they said that's already well known. These events took way, place way back in 2001. They said you should already know that, and they held the Hawaiian parole board and the uh, 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 and the agent personally liable for violating Inui's civil rights. It was one step beyond saying you can't force a guy to go to AA if that's not his religion. It said you we've already told you that other circuit courts have said that you need to know that. Yeah. So. In some sense, although that's overridden time and time again, I, I, I don't want to sound anti-American. There's some sensibleness in the Constitution and in American courts that I don't want to go to say they're yeah. Buddhist. But, you know, you can't force people's inside beliefs to, right. cor- to correspond with yours. In America, we have a rule about that. Yeah. In the First Amendment. I wish we followed it more often. Right. Yeah, that's that's the key. Listen, Stanton, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, we I, there are a thousand things we haven't talked about, but maybe we can do a part two next time I'm in New York. Well, or uh, you're in Oregon. Promise me when my when my book comes out, we're gonna we're gonna recoordinate. All right, we'll do that. When's it coming out? February of next year. So. All right, uh, good. And uh, you t- may be living in Oregon. That I understand by that. Possibly, it possibly if if Back one of to our, America. Well, for a while, for <laughs> just for a while, we're on a five year plan. Speaking of Stalin, who you five years earlier. means you don't know what the hell you're doing after five years. We don't know what the hell we're doing after five minutes, but uh, we're trying to think five years. I ahead. just want to end. This with one of your many great insights. <laughs> All right. Now with me. Come on. It's the, well, one it's of my insights. Ryan. You came back to visit your parents, and they now live in L.A., which I didn't understand. Because aren't you from Ohio or something? Pennsylvania, yeah. I'm yeah. from Philadelphia. Yeah. My dad's and, from Philadelphia. And I said to you, what was the main thing you noticed? What's the first thing that strikes you? Because you've been living in Spain for years. He said, mm. the main thing I notice is a strange way that people present them sexually, self-sexually in the United States. You go to Los Angeles and see these people are obviously toned to the 100th degree. They work out constantly. And they don't convey the slightest bit of sexual intimacy or approachability. Mm. And in a way, I think, I don't know, that encapsulates a lot. It's kind of an externality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Cassie and I were talking about that, that last night. We were sitting in a bar watching people go by and talking about how much more attractive the women are in New York mm-hmm. compared to L.A. And more natural-looking, more relaxed-looking. Natural relaxed and a lot of that is, I think, because New York is so much more multinational than LA is much more American in some ways LA is like the quintessential American place because it's where the American image is created and all that but you know you were talking about this sort of wrap up with the Buddhist thing you reminded me I took one class you didn't take any classes in addiction studies and all that I took one class it was so you're, you're better trained than I'm, I'm, an, I'm more of an expert than you I th- remember <laughs> I'm a psychologist not a lawyer okay well both you're both I am yeah you're a, a you know a double hitter or whatever that's called a switch hitter um so i took one class it was the first term of graduate school and of course i had read all of andrew weil i knew andrew weil personally at that point i you know uh, taken quite a bit of drugs myself and read a lot about consciousness so i went into this class thinking this guy's going to be given the sort of standard bullshit 
line about addiction and drug, all drugs are bad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to, it's going to be a long term for both of us. Cause I'm not going to put up with this shit. So instead I get there and the guy was fucking great. He was fantastic. And he talked about, he was talking, the first thing he did was he, there were a class of like 30 people. He said, okay, please raise your hand. If you would say that one or both of your parents was an addict of some sort. Half the class raised their hands. He said, okay, now, um, the rest of you, raise your hand if you would say that you were raised in what you would consider to be a severely dysfunctional family. Everybody in the class except me had their hand raised at that point. I was one of 30, right? And he said, okay, the point is people who get into therapy from the perspective of the therapist are dealing with a lot of issues. So you need to acknowledge that. You need to like constantly be careful about your own bias and your own whatever. Anyway, so he got into the the class and, and was talking about how a lot of people who come to you as a therapist are under duress. They're forced by their boss, the police, their spouse, whatever. Either you get therapy or we're done or you're going to prison. And he said, you can't... Um, you can't be in an oppositional position with that. You need to not take that personally. They're going to come in there hating you. They're going to come in there with all sorts of resistance and, and negative energy. And you have to accept that energy and don't engage with it in a competitive, controlling way, which is a lot of what we've been talking about yeah. today. And I raised my hand. I said, you know, that sounds a little bit like Aikido. And he said, oh, talk to me after class about that. That's a good point. So after class, I went up. He said, listen, I couldn't say this in class, but you will learn more about psychology and therapy from studying Aikido than you'll ever learn in this school or any other school. That's what you want to study, Aikido, because it's all about engaging with energy without resisting it, without fighting against it. Have you ever thought of being a therapist? Well, I have. I mean, when I when I decided to get a PhD in psychology, uh, the idea was to practice therapy in California. Um, but then I moved back to Spain and and decided to stay in Spain. And Do you feel sort of you have up. some gift for working with people in terms of not arousing their hackles and being able to get where they are? Do you, do you feel that's true of you? Yeah, I wonder if I've got the patience for it, though. Well, right. You know, I'm, I'm not a particularly patient person. I wouldn't think you'd person. be that giving to be a therapist for people, but I do think you have that ability. At the same time, you have very strong opinions. The very fact that you're doing a podcast, or by and large, your job is to ask other people questions. You can do your own podcast and give your own opinions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a somewhat unique thing about you, you know, for somebody to write a very decisive, opinionated book. But uh, you also combine with that some skill at interaction without, you know, generally speaking, raising people's hackles. And that's a good therapeutic technique. Yeah, maybe as I get older, I'll get more patient. We'll see what happens. But Casilda is a very good therapist because she's much more content to let people figure things out at their own pace. Whereas my impulse, if I'm with someone, is is sort of to say, you know, why are we wasting time? You know, here's the problem. It's right in front of you. You know, let's stop this bullshit and deal with your fucking problem. That's not a good thing to say. (laughs) Between writing a book. And writing a book about addiction yeah. and dealing with a person. And dealing addiction. with a person, yeah, definitely. Because, yeah. yeah, you can't say, let's just 
Let's go to page 283. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Skip the introduction. (laughs) All right. Listen, uh, tell people uh, you're a blogger, a longtime blogger at Psychology Today. You're one of the originals, I think. I've been there a long time. You know, I was just looking. I've got two and a half million blog view post views. I'm a blogger at Huffington Post. I'm the author of some books they might want to pick up. Yeah. Uh, All on Amazon, right? They're all on Amazon. Seven Tools to Beat Addiction. And uh, the truth about addiction and recovery are self-help books. There's Addiction Proof Your Child. In February, I come out with Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict, and Follow the Perfect Program. Uh-huh. I'm doing an ebook version of Love and Addiction. It Looking be forward to that. Praying within a month or two. All right. And, uh, you know, I think people will read it and say, God, he was maybe on to something. So I haven't retired yet. Good. Good. Well, it's. I think. I think American culture is on the verge of major changes, and we need you. We need your voice to to help guide those changes. So it's a good time. Yeah. You know, as I said, I expect to get the Nobel Prize. Tell your viewers to vote for me. You know, <laughs> now the DSM is slowly rounding into my point of view. All right. Addiction. Addiction doesn't have to do with just drugs. So I think it's my time in the sun. All right. Let's go to Stockholm and get drunk. Thank All right. you. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Smoke alarms will dance into the ground. 